to Martha, 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 you are busy about a great many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. I'm sure that made Martha feel wonderful. Well, maybe not so much. It didn't stop Jesus from, from telling her that. Why? Because Jesus understood that telling people the truth is more important than being concerned about their feelings. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for my hearers. I pray, dear Lord, that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to perceive. I ask, dear Heavenly Father, you would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And you would open to us your holy word. It belongs to you. All words belong to you. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the sunder of soul and spirit. Even to the joint marrow of the bone is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, use this, I pray. You should use it the way you desire, and I pray you would use it that way. My desire is that you would use this for good. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, it would be used, always used righteously. But I, I would pray, Lord, for hearers to receive the things and not walk away like a man viewing himself in a mirror quickly forgets what manner of man he is. I pray for life-changing, long-lasting transformation in all of our hearts, that your word would have impact on who we are and that it would change who we are to the good. To see Jesus in all his glory on the cross, to see him in, in all his victory in the resurrection, to see him as seated in the heavens, on the throne of God, and at the right hand of the Almighty, who he is, and as an intercessor and a high priest, and is coming again, to set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, and then for eternity. Lord, grant these words be powerful on our behalf and for your honor and your glory and for your pleasure in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, message for today is uh, from episode, this is episode 28, titled Glorified Together from Romans 8 and verses 17 and 16 through 18. Romans 8, 16 through 18, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This uh, message, of course, is taken in context in uh, 16 through 18, which is starting a new thought, actually 
could go back to verse 12. And uh, so we back up a little bit to find out where he's been coming from. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So there's been this comparison now being made by Paul between living in the flesh, what he terms as living in the flesh, and uh, living in the spirit. So then, brothers, we're not, he's saying, under obligation to live to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a spiritual man and there's a fleshly man, a man who's only in flesh, and a man who's been renewed, been born again. He now has the life of God living within his soul. He's become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So as in 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. They've been born again. We're not a, these people are not just made in the image of God uh, in, in that sense that we mirror God to some fallen extent because we've in sin now, but we're actually inducted into the family of God. I'm not going to take time to go into details of that, but there's a difference. Being born to God, being born again, now we're in the family of God. Verse 15, for you not have, have not received the spirit of slavery, which what it means to be born to the race of Adam, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry, Abba, Father, or Dad. God has become our, our dad in an intimate relationship, which brings us to verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if, and if children, heirs also, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in these three verses, we see this bringing us into this place of both sufferings, and glory. And that's what we want to speak to today. You know, of all the things we could say about people in a general sense, things like common to man, like we all get angry, have a need for food, long for companionship, we all experience emotions to one degree or another. We're all individuals, but there's this commonality that we spent, what we experience as being in a race, the race of Adam, there is also within every one of us a seeking for recognition, acceptance, respect, and glory. And the primary factor that separates a born-again, regenerate believer from a lost sinner is this willingness to give Jesus Christ all the glory. And I've heard John MacArthur say the Christian is the only person on earth that takes all the blame for what he does wrong in life and none of the credit for the good. And that's, that is a great analysis of the difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and one who doesn't. Lost unbelievers, they're separated from God and, and live in hatred of him because of sin. All have sinned. Therefore, as part of the human race, we all have the potential to sin. And as soon as we reach an age to make mature choices, we choose to reject God, rebel against his rule, and follow after gods of our liking. And a person who's a Christian comes to understand these things as he studies God's word. 
deep down inside of all people, well, we despise the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because of pride. No one wants to know the truth about himself. No one wants to read the Bible. We prefer self-help books, how to take control of our lives, rule others, you know, those kinds of things. The Christian is the person who walks down a different path. He begins to cease seeking his own well-being and begins to seek the well-being of others. Furthermore, he begins to love God's word. And by his word, God's word, he begins to change. We're instructed by Peter, for example, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, and like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kind kindness of the Lord. There is always the true and the false in all things, especially in religion, those who are authentic and those who are phony. Quote, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face, natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, he has con- and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. James 1, 23 to 25. You know, the authentic Christian begins to separate from the world. Biblical worldliness is that state of being that holds tight to past evils, like Israel in the wilderness. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's this distinction between a a Christian and a worldly person. Many are the the warnings of the New Testament writers about worldliness and falling into temptations and snares, particularly among the general epistles. Not that Paul does not warn, but the eleven walked for three years in the presence of Christ with Judas, betrayed Jesus, and then hung himself. Judas, not an apostle, but a half Jude, I'm sorry, not an apostle, but a half-brother of our Lord, warns us. Verses 17 to 23, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostle of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time, There will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the one who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And then some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So you get this, first of all, this this idea, again, of separating from ungodly lusts. We are people who are in the spirit, not in the flesh. Eleven walked in the spirit. One walked always in the flesh, was never born again, was never redeemed. But he walked along like one who 
you know, was. And they didn't even realize it. Contrary to worldly lusts is the willingness to be persecuted for our faith in Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Also, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sad to say, but today in American culture, particularly American Christian culture, you know, would tell us that the primary directive is to avoid offending people or making them feel bad. Yes, even by avoiding telling the whole truth. Now, no one's going to say that part. But if you carry the, the, the cultural philosophy to its logical conclusion, the only way to avoid making a person feel bad is by avoiding things that you would say that would make them feel bad. Now, certainly we can be fleshly and we can be overly aggressive, we can be selfish and proud, and all those things can be stumbling blocks. But, but if we're not that way and we make people feel bad, well, then it's not us that's doing that, but it's the gospel. And I want you to lack, latch on to that because uh, Jesus, uh, we are told, includes the words we use, the story we tell, the gospel that we bring um, is not to be dumbed down. It's not to avoid making people feel bad. We are to tell the whole gospel. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tied mint and dill and come and and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know, Jesus came down really, really hard in Matthew 23 with woe after woe after woe, not because they didn't understand the law, not because they didn't speak the law, but they, they confused their conception of the law, which was no law at all, not as God presented it, but they presented their themselves. Again, in Luke eleven thirty nine, and the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. What I want to look at is the way Jesus spoke to people. I mean, if, if we're going to take this to heart and we're not going to make people feel bad by what we say, then Jesus is the supreme example. I mean, he is the source of love. He is what it means to be loving. So now... Tell me how you would feel if you go to, you invite Jesus into your home, you sit down at a table, and the, those are the words you hear are, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup uh, and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Uh, how does that make you feel? He just sat down, he, and these are like the first words in the scripture, first words out of his mouth. Again, he says to another person, let the dead, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You want to follow me? Proclaim the kingdom of God. Prior to that, he called you dead. How do you feel about that? How about this? And now some will say to me, uh, but you're not Jesus. No, I'm not. But I'm commanded and, and warned and exhorted throughout the New Testament to be like him. What does that mean? If I'm not going to follow what he did. No, I'm not Jesus. There is no other Jesus. There's only one God. 
for we're made to be made in the image of God. And Psalm said, watch him, but don't be like him, because, see, we know better how to be more loving than Jesus. Let's, let's not think in those ways right now. Let's just step back. You may have preconceived ideas. You may have ideas that are set on, I don't know, your own study or what you've heard from others. I don't know. Right now, what I'm putting before you is just take an open mind to this. These are the things said in, by Jesus. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. How do you feel about that? Does it make you feel good? I mean, if you're looking at yourself at the moment, and you can instantly look at yourself as one who's looking back, how does it make you feel? When we look back to the kind of life we used to live as sinful people, more concerned about what people think, we would compromise the truth, tell lies, half-truths, get along with others. The Bible tells us to not look back at the old ways, but to go forward following Jesus and the way he interacted with the world. So what does that mean? Well, in reference to Romans 8, 16 through 18, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. We're something new now. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory is to be revealed to us. How are we to suffer in this present world? Well, after telling us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone to believers in 1 Peter 2, he goes on to make this statement from a scripture quote. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Jesus himself. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Or they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this they were appointed. There are people that no matter how nice you speak, no matter how you try to avoid offenses and stumbling blocks, if you speak about Jesus at all in a rightful way to some people, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Look, we want to care about people. We want to love people. We want to love them well. We want to be sensitive to who they are. But a person that's filled with pride and who has not been broken at all before the cross will respond in a disobedient way to the word. According to John, in his first letter in chapter 2, he said this, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, meaning Jesus. Look, Jesus healed a nation. He cared for people. He spoke in a loving way all the time, whether you read that and see it or not. And speaking the truth is the most, the best way to love people. The one who abides in him ought to walk in the manner that he walked, which means to talk the way he talked. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, when you see people not walking on pins and needles, no, neither did Jesus. And he always walked in love because he is the source of love. 
but walk on pins and needles, not to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that in the Gospels. And I think if you spend a, if you haven't already, if you spend a good deal of time in the Gospels, you'll see that too. Especially if your eyes are willing to see that. Let's consider for a moment how Jesus did act according to the accounts we have in the Gospels. Luke chapter 4. He speaks a message. He lets the, his hearers in Nazareth, who knew him from a child, he, uh, he let them understand that uh, both the Naaman the leper and, uh, and a woman during the time of famine, who were not Jews, were given grace and they were given help in time of need. And then he, he said, you know, surely you're going to reject me for who I am, but, you know, the things that you hear and see, have heard, and he was quoting from Isaiah about the appointed day, year of the Lord, was speaking about him and that he was actually the Messiah. And these words so infuriated these people that they literally drug him to a cliff to throw him off, and then he passed through their midst. They were going to throw him off a cliff from the words he said. That doesn't sound in the culture of today like a loving way to do something. I gave you some previous References, this is another one. Now he says in Luke 12, now, and I quoted this already about the cup and the dish. Then he also goes on and talks to Peter, who said, this will never happen to you. I mean, nobody's going to take you and put you to death, to which he responds, get behind me, Satan. I mean, how does it make you feel when Jesus looks you in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan? But that's what, exactly what Jesus said. Peter walks out to Jesus through the danger of water and waves to get to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Immediately, Jesus reached out with his hand, took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, in a way, he said the best thing he could possibly say. Uh, David, uh, Peter, sorry, you need to get a hold of yourself, and you need to put more faith in me. You're doubting. Don't think that did not hurt Peter. Uh, but Jesus didn't mean for it to hurt him. That's not why he said it. But he didn't mind the fact that it would hurt his feelings. What he cared about was that he get the truth. Disciples, in fear for their lives, woke Jesus and said, Lord, we're going to be drowned. What are you doing? Paraphrased. To which he responded, Where is your faith? To Martha, 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 you are busy about a great many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. I'm sure that made Martha feel wonderful. Well, maybe not so much. It didn't stop Jesus from, from telling her that. Why? Because Jesus understood that telling people the truth is more important than being concerned about their feelings. Now, on the part of the person who might even be listening to this and might be saying, man, you're like really being hard on me right now because you may be feeling guilt for not being straightforward with people, with people the way Jesus was. And maybe you're feeling like, hey, I'm not God. I can't do this. Well, understand something. Understand the value of the truth. Understand that you can't love a person any better than speaking the truth. Look, if someone's going to run into a burning house, 
and, and you maybe don't tackle them to the ground, but you say you better not go in that building because if you go in that building, something's going to happen to you that's going to be horrible. It's going to be, it's going to last for years. It may kill you. Now that might really hurt your feelings. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that building. Well, think about it. Which is more important, their feel, how they feel about walking in the building or that they not go in the building? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now look, being one with Christ, being identified with Christ, uh, being willing to suffer with Christ means persecution. It means rejection. It means hurting people's feelings. It's going to come a lot more than not because broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many go in that way. And if you speak to those people who are not destined, have not been chosen by God, and they have to make the choice after God chooses them, but God has to choose because he's the creator of life and he's the creator of redemption and he's the one who's in charge of the universe. And if you don't believe that, then you need to reconsider your idea of God. And nowhere in the scripture does it say he gave up that authority. No, nowhere. There's only one God, and he will not share that glory with another. And that includes being the first and last one to make choices. That's what it means to be God, in part. Big part. So we're talking about suffering so that we might also be glorified. By definition... Verse 17, glorified. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. In Greek, it means or is the joining, to join in approving, to glorify together, emphasizing the believer's close identity with the Lord. The factor, the fact which specifically correlates to the unique glorification between experience and at his return. It only occurs in Romans 8, 17. It's an identification with Christ in which we come, we're so united that we get to share in the glorification of Christ. There is the glory we share with Christ and there is a glory that is intrinsic within God and belongs to him alone. In verse 18, we're told, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That word glory in the Greek means opinion, praise, honor, glory. It means it is to be it is used in the New Testament as honor, renowned, and especially divine quality. It's, it's the unspoken manifestation of God, a splendor. It's doxa, from dokio, or exercising personal opinion which determines value. Doxa, or glory, corresponds to the Old Testament word, kabo, which means to be heavy. Both terms convey God's infinite intrinsic work, his substance and essence. Let me tell you, God is heavy. Doxa literally means what evokes good opinion. Something has inherent, intrinsic work. Worth, I'm sorry. Therefore, 
There is shared glory, and there is a glory that belongs to God alone, a glory he will not share with any other, nor should he, as we read in Isaiah 48, 10 and 11. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's not a shared glory. That's a glory that belongs to God and only God. And that will never change. In verses 20, 21 of Romans 8, it says, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, that's that shared glory. Uh, We get glory in the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And when we're united with him, he took our sins upon himself. He carried them far away. Uh, And we get the glory of his resurrected life because we're sharing that newness of life, made perfect when we either die here or he comes back and we receive uh, our new resurrected bodies. In either case, there's that shared glory in redemption and there's the glory of the infinite God who's all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, uh, who's the creator of all things, who spoke and everything came into being. We have nothing to do with that. See, those are the differences between shared glory and intrinsic glory. First of all, his glory being intrinsic is that holiness begins with God. He, he determines what's right and what's wrong. He's the source of holiness, of love, of mercy, of grace, of righteousness, of justice. He's the sources of all things. We're not. But we share in the glory of redemption, as I spoke, because when the Father sees Jesus, he sees us. He sees us in carrying our sins away. He sees us in imparting newness of life. That's the shared glory. Our present Christian culture that demands we do not offend anyone and it, as it does, actually, we're not even allowed to hurt anyone's feelings. I've said this. So I need to ask the question, so what is loving to hurt a person's feelings and lead them in the direction of heaven or not hurt them, their feelings, and allow them to go to hell? Uh, I want to look at what God says, having covered that, uh, to what he says about offending people. And for that, we're going to look at Matthew 18, 1 through 6 to begin with. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a, a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, before we think about offenses, consider if you just asked Jesus, who is the greatest? And in your heart you're thinking, uh, you are or want to be great. How do you feel about Jesus putting a child in front of you and saying you need to become 
like this little child. I mean, the little child, they're not great leaders, um, but that's what you need to be. You, you need to really understand dependence upon God. You know, when it comes right down to the gospel, uh, the gospel really is talking about dependence upon God. First of all, Jesus used literal children as a metaphor to show the value of humility. And a humility that the world really doesn't know anything about. In the context of the question, who's the greatest? Jesus says, unless you turn and repent of the sin of pride, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven or God. Jesus tells us about stumbling uh, I should, I'm sorry, John tells us about stumbling blocks in his first letter. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded <coughs> sorry, his eyes. Wow, that's interesting. So the key to be a guide to others to discipling men in the faith is to have the discernment to do so. How, we obtain, how do we obtain discernment? By studying the scriptures every day. Not so that we can say we know the Bible, but to know God properly and to discern His will. This is one of the main reasons why all believers should be united in the faith. Did you hear that? This is one of the reasons why all believers should be united in the faith. If I know the scriptures and adhere to them according to the will of God, and you do the same, then we must see things in the same way. We, I don't know how zealous we are for that kind of unity. Are we kind of content to be who we are, to be in the, the denomination or the church or you know, where we are? And, and that's like actually becomes a little bit more important than unity. Why am I switching over to unity? Well, you know, if, if offenses come within Christian circles, they usually come in this area of the things that divide us. And I, I, I want us to understand that being offensive is not something that we're okay with just because the gospel is offensive. It's one thing to be offensive for the truth's sake, it's quite another thing to be offensive because we're, we're proud. No believer should ever accept the lie that unity is impossible. If we believe we are in control of our own lives, well then okay. But the dynamic of the Christian life is that Christ is uh, the vine and we are the branch. And apart from him we can do nothing. If we want to believe God is not in control, then okay. But being of the same mind, well, it is impossible when we're in control. But that, is that really how we want to live our life in the world? Do we want to live in control? Or do we want to live our life in a miraculous way, being connected to Christ who actually could create unity? I'm kind of speaking to the church universal right now. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, Peter said, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's that mean? That means, you know, they, people can justify and rationalize anything. And they can look at us and they can hate us for the words that come out of our mouth, but they can't deny the godly life that we live in. On the day of judgment, there won't be no questioning what godliness is. Not to God. He's going to make it straight and every mouth and tongue is going to be shut because Jesus Christ is Lord. Peter then goes on to talk about submission to authorities, that is, uh, authorities that are ministering of good and punish the guilty. As Christians, we're not to rebel, but neither are we to condone evil and lies. Jesus never did. Jesus looked just, I mean, if we just look at Jesus, when he was on trial, uh, or any other time, but when he's on trial, we see him quiet and lamb-like, like a lamb to the slaughter, except when a lie is told. He won't take part in it. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Oh, so you are a king, Pilate said. And he said, for this reason, I was born. He's not really a lamb right there. Uh, he is a lamb. He's about to be slaughtered. But he's not going to put up with lies. And other such things were because he would not permit himself to partake in a lie. He, he does not, it does not matter what the lie is, if it's political and, and not the main point of the, or the, not the main point of the gospel, the Christian should never partake in any kind of lie. Why? Well, because Jesus did. There was the Apostle Paul who wrote this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I told you in my heart. I hold you in my heart for you all are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul would not compromise the gospel, neither would he ever water it down or use other words than those that are pro clearly proclaim the gospel. doesn't mean you know, we don't define words. We do that in English. We should all the time if we want to be good communicators, let alone biblical words. If people don't understand the words that we use, explain them. But we never should be right to change the words that are there. Neither the way he says it. God exalts his word above his name in Psalm 119. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, Paul said, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So, no watering anything down. There is no discernment when we water down the gospel by changing the words that God used in order to avoid offense or even in ourselves to some way be more clear. Look at Paul's desire for the Philippian believers. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Approve what is excellent. What could be more excellent than God's word? How can we be pure and blameless when we change the message, particularly by defining and explaining sin, which is the very thing that the lost reject. When once you bring up sin, you know, you're done, unless God is working in a person's heart. Just as important, we cannot be blameless unless we live our lives consistently with the message we proclaim. You know, coming up in Romans 9, Paul has the same thing to say about stumbling stones and offenses. He says, 
What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. Paul makes it clear that the thing that separates a Jew from a Christian in the present is faith. Faith in Christ. And then continues and says, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled. Oh, there we go, stumbling again. Over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In Paul's mind, the shame is not is in not receiving the Christ of the authentic gospel message. The shame would be receiving another gospel, which is no gospel at all, a message compromised by the world and deception, watered down and made not to offend. Look at what he said to the Corinthians in the 6th chapter. Behold, now is the favorable time, his first letter. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. Oh, we put no obstacle. Now, he's not talking about Christ who is a stumbling block and a stumbling stone. He's talking about obstacles. And that way would be actually softening the gospel. That's an obstacle. We must use biblical words and concepts the way they are meant to be used. There is a gospel presentation that uses the word broken in an unbiblical way. The word broken in the Bible means humble and contrite from Psalm 51, 17 and other places. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Look, broken is something that's not working correctly. Well, in a sense, we're not working correctly, but the Bible calls it sinful, wicked, wretched, words that don't really sit well with people with sensitive spirits uh, or, or get their feelings hurt easily. But make no mistake, when we preach about sin, we should call sin, sin, and we should define it. And we shouldn't use the word broken when we should be talking about sinful. What we need to do is to turn from that through what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is just that a broken and a contrite spirit. And that's done at the cross, where Jesus is bleeding and broken, and broken in the sense none of his bones were broken. Um, he was, and the, that's a biblical term for Jesus, and it certainly doesn't mean broken like we are. It means, it, it means beaten and, and, and disfigured and, you know, in, in, in and that's what sin does. And he was taking his, our sins upon himself. Sinners are ruined before God. Are spoken of in this way by James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When Jesus knew that the people to whom he was speaking uh, would know he was speaking about them, he said this. Then summoning him, his master, said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way? That I 
had mercy on you. And his master moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that he owed him. Jesus concluded by saying to the people, and he did not mince words, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Paul continues, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. So with all of that goodness, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love. Why are there hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, afflictions? Why? Not because they weren't being nice, because they were preaching a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, some upon becoming Christian, or even remaining sinners may honor us, though slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known by God, as dying that is willing to die for Christ. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. He was killed eventually. As sorrowful and always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and having nothing yet possessing everything. I mean, he had perspective. I mean, Paul had perspective. The perspective we all need to carry as Christians. I preach this to myself. Look, fear is, is not unfamiliar to any of us. The, a desire not to be rejected. Come on. It, it's, it's everything we are. Fear takes hold of us all. Even Paul prayed and asked others to pray that he might be bold. I mean, if he had to pray, what should we say? No matter where we look in the scripture, there's an agreement with Paul's words in Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look, there's a miracle working that takes place in the life of Christian. It's called about, it's, it's, it's actually called spirit-filled life. That's a miracle. Being a new person, being willing to suffer for Christ, to be persecuted for Christ's sake, that's a miracle. A miracle we should all desire. Not a miracle to heal people and give them a sign. I mean, really? I mean, Abraham said, look, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they don't hear them, they're not going to believe, even though they see one raised from the dead. Now, Father Abraham had some serious wisdom. So in conclusion of this teaching is this. Christians apart from the Spirit of God are men like all others. Fleshly appetites bring men into slavery to sin. 
However, the Christian is to live by the Holy Spirit and not by the power of the flesh. Jesus said, once again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In him we live and we move and we have our being. Everything. Can't control our hearts. Can't even control our minds right. Can't do anything right. Can't do anything. We don't see it. You know, we think we're on our own. We think we're working on our own power. We can't move from here to there without God. That's the reality. But we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit of God, however, does dwell within the heart of an authentic believer of Jesus Christ. If the Spirit dwells in us, then we will suffer with Him. That being the case, verse 18 becomes a reality for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is his glory. Truth matters above all else because apart from truth, there can be no love. And apart from truth, there's no suffering. And apart from suffering, there's no glory. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a strong message. It's a message to a people who naturally as sinners, naturally are fleshly. We don't want to feel rejection. We want to feel praise. We don't want to be persecuted. We want to be glorified. We don't want to be fe- have fear of people every minute of every day, but we're naturally idolaters. We do not naturally glorify God. Lord, I ask that you would bring your glory into our hearts, that we would desire the glory that comes through the cross, comes through dying to self, glory that comes to loving and focusing on on heaven and the kingdom to come. Not that this is the kingdom. This is not the kingdom. The kingdom can live in our hearts, but the kingdom is in heaven. The kingdom is in a new heaven and a new earth. Even the millennial kingdom is not that kingdom. It's glory. It's where Jesus reigns. It's where an earthly people reign and will reign. This this is world, the world at its worst. It's the world that's rejecting Jesus Christ and the gospel that he proclaimed and that he lived, that he died for and that he was risen from the dead for. Lord, he lives in our hearts. I pray that you would take this word that we might live for you and that we would not compromise the words of the gospel in any way. We would not water them down. We would speak the truth in love. We would care for people. We would love people. We would desire people to go to heaven and be rescued from the hell to come. And in that way, we would speak the truth, not being offensive unintentionally or intentionally, but being loving intentionally by speaking the truth. I ask these things for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.